Father, we do desire that Christ would be glorified, that he would be magnified in all the things that we sing, in all the things that we say to one another. And Lord, we desire that as well in, in what will be said from this pulpit. And Lord, as we come into the Christmas season, uh, more than at other times of the year, we are drawn to, to consider deep truths about who you are, about who your son is. And we, we quickly find ourselves in deep water in over our heads. Um, and your word calls us to consider such things, and we do well to do so, but at the same time, uh, nowhere is it, is it easier to make a misstep in what we say about who you are and about who your son is. So, Lord, I pray that uh, you would place a guard over my mouth as I speak, uh, that I would say things that uh, are only affirmed and taught by your word and not stray off uh, into things that are not proclaimed by your word, so that we might see Christ for who he is as he is presented in your word, so that he might be magnified and that we might worship him the way he is properly worshipped. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. Well, we began to consider John chapter 1, verse 14 last week, and we're continuing to consider that one verse again. And as we do so, we are thinking about who Jesus Christ is. Who Jesus Christ is. If he is a, a mere man, then what we have been singing about this morning is entirely inappropriate and blasphemous. So how, how is it that we can sing such things about Jesus Christ? Who is he? By what authority does he do what he does? When you read the Gospels, you see Jesus saying and doing many things, even shocking things, things that would be entirely inappropriate for a mere man to do. And I just want to show you a few of these things. And at each point, what comes into question is the authority of Jesus. Why is it that he and nobody else can say the things he says and do the things he does? Why is it appropriate for this man who walked among us to say and do these kinds of things? For example, uh, look at John chapter 2. And we'll get to John 1, but I want to run you through these various passages just to see the way Jesus talks, see what he does, and see how this question of, of, of why he gets to say such things and do such things is raised. So John chapter 2, we see in verses 13 through 22, how at the very start of his ministry, Jesus cleanses the temple. He goes in and he sees people uh, selling so that, that individuals can offer sacrifice and they're taking advantage of these people who are buying offerings. And Jesus cleanses the temple. He drives out the money changers. In verse 18, in response to this, the Jews say to him, what sign do you show us as your authority for doing these things? They're wondering, how do you get to do what you just did in cleansing the temple? We see this again at the end of his ministry, Matthew chapter 21. And I'm going to be turning to these very quickly. If, if you can't keep up, it's fine to just listen. But Matthew 21, uh, Jesus cleanses the temple again. 
In verses 12 to 17, this is at the end of his ministry, and his authority for doing so is again questioned, and we see that question arise in verse 23. When he entered the temple, the chief priests and the elders of the people came to him while he was teaching and said, by what authority are you doing these things? And who gave you this authority? We also see the question of authority rise in Christ's teaching. Look at Matthew 7 and verse 29. This is at the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And you see how the people react to what he has just taught in chapters 5 through 7. Chapter 7, verse 28 says, When Jesus had finished these words, the crowds were amazed at his teaching. For he was teaching them as one having authority and not as their scribes. So the way he was teaching and what he was saying had a a certain level of authority that far exceeded what they had ever heard before from the scribes and the Pharisees. Uh, Look at Mark chapter 2. This question of authority arises in how Jesus forgives people of their sins. Mark chapter 2, in verses 5 through 10, we see Uh, Jesus encounter a paralytic, and in verse 5, he tells the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. And in verse 7, the scribes who are there ask, Why does this man speak that way? He is blaspheming. Who can forgive sins but God alone? And then in verse 10, Jesus says, But so that you may know that the Son of Man has authority on earth to forgive sins, And then he goes on and proves that he has that authority by healing that man. We also see the authority of Christ in Mark chapter 1 and verse 27. Oftentimes Jesus' teaching was paired with him uh, expelling demons out of people. uh, Verses 21 through 26, you see such an instance of Jesus driving an unclean spirit, a demon, out of someone. Verse 27 says that they were all amazed, so that they debated among themselves, saying, What is this? A new teaching with authority. He commands even the unclean spirits, and they obey him. And now let's go back to the Gospel of John, where we see more displays of authority. John chapter 1 and verse 12 says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right or the authority to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name. Who is Jesus that he has the authority to give you the authority to become a child of God? Look at chapter 10 of John and verse 18. Jesus says, no one has taken it, his life, he's talking about. No one has taken it away from me, but I lay it down on my own initiative. I have authority to lay it down, and I have authority to take it up again. This commandment I received from my Father. He has the authority to resurrect himself. And then look at chapter 8 of John. The language of authority does not occur here, but the idea is very much present. John chapter 8, verse 51, Jesus says, Truly, truly, I say to you, 
If anyone keeps my word, he will never see death. The Jews said to him, Now we know that you have a demon. Abraham died and the prophets also, and you say, If anyone keeps my word, he will never taste of death. Surely you are not greater than our father Abraham who died. The prophets died too. Whom do you make yourself out to be? You know, if I came to you and I said, Listen, if you just do what I say, you'll never see death. You would say, You're out of your mind. You're crazy. You're, you're possessed. Who are you to say something like that? Well, who is Jesus to make these statements and to do these things? By what authority can he do this when nobody else can? Well, when we come to John 1, verse 14, we see who he is. We see why he can say these things, why he can do these things and no one else can. And it is, of course, because he is God himself. God himself. So let me, look, let me read chapter 1 of John, verse 14, for us again. This says, And the word became flesh and dwelt among us. And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now last week we considered the first phrase there, and the word became flesh. And we considered, who is this word? What is John talking about when he mentions the word? And we went back to the first few verses of this chapter. We read verse 1, which says, In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And out of that verse, we learned three important things. Do you remember? What was the first important thing we learned from verse 1? The pop quiz. The Word is what? Yes, eternal. In the beginning, He was already there. The Word is eternal. We learned a second important thing. What was the second important thing we learned? And it has to do with the phrase, the word was with God. Anybody remember? Not only is he eternal, but he is eternally with God. Which tells you that there's a distinction there. There's a distinction between the word and God. We're looking at two distinct persons here. And there was a third thing we learned. The word was God. The third thing we learned is that this word who is eternal, this word who has eternally been with God, this same word is also eternally God. And we ask the question, how can this word be with God and be God at the same time? And of course, we talked about how we see the doctrine of the Trinity here, right? The reason why the word can be with God and be God at the same time is because he's a distinct person but shares the nature of God. God is one being. He's, he's one essence and yet exists as three persons. And each of those persons, the Father, the Son, or the Word, and the Spirit, fully possess the divine nature. And yet each person fully possesses that nature in such a way that there are not three gods, there is only one God. And we see that in verse 1. We meet one of those persons, the Word who was with God and who was God. And this word, this eternal word, who created all things, we saw that in verse 3, this word, verse 14, became what? Flesh. He became flesh. He took upon himself human nature. 
And the, the, what we find here is a, another doctrine, and that is the doctrine of the hypostatic union. Anybody ever heard of that before? Yeah? Hypostatic, that's a fancy word for personal, personal union. And what that doctrine is talking about is that in one person, this divine person, this word, in this one person, you find two natures, divine nature and human nature. Jesus is not two people, he's one person, one person with a divine nature and a human nature. That's what the incarnation is, this word who is God took on flesh such that he became not just one divine person, but now one divine and human person. So that's a quick recap of what we looked at last week. The word became flesh. Now let's look at the next phrase. This word who is God became flesh, and when he became flesh, he didn't stop being God. He didn't stop being the word. We know that because John continues to describe this word. He's not describing someone else. He's describing the same word. And he further describes this word as dwelling among us. Dwelling among us. That word for dwelt, it's the Greek word skenao. And I'm telling you that so that we can uh, discern some connections here. Skenao. And the noun form of that word is skene. And that means tent. Skene means tent. Skenao, which is the word here, means to live or camp in a tent. And this word is only used one other place. It's the book of Revelation, which was also written by John. And he uses it a few times in that book, but the, the one reference that is particularly relevant to us here is Revelation 21, where John uses this same verb, skenao. Turn to Revelation 21. We're considering the word dwell, the word dwelt among us, the word skenao, among us. Revelation 21, verse 3. John says, I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, Behold the skene, tent or tabernacle. The tabernacle of God is among men and he will dwell among them. Skenao. He will dwell among them. And they shall be his people, and God himself will be among them. We see there that in the new heavens and the new earth to come, God, he's not going to be far apart from us. No, he's going to dwell among us. And this action of God to dwell among his people, it's something he has always wanted to do. In fact, we see this back in the Old Testament. Let's go back to Exodus Exodus 25 and verse 9, we see God instruct Moses to construct a tent, a tabernacle for him. Exodus 25, verse 9. I'm in Leviticus. I've got to get to Exodus. Exodus 25, verse 9, he says, According to all that I am going to show you, as the pattern of the tabernacle, 
and the pattern of all its furniture, just so you shall construct it. The Greek translation of the Old Testament, the Septuagint, the word for tabernacle there is skene, tent. God wants his people to construct a tent. Why? Let's go over to Exodus 29, where we find out why. Exodus 29, verse 44. God says, I will consecrate the tent, that's Skene again in the Septuagint. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. I will also consecrate Aaron and his sons to minister as priests to me. Verse, 20, verse 45. I will dwell among the sons of Israel and will be their God. They shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt, that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That's always been God's desire, to dwell among his people. He wanted it way back in Exodus. He wants it in the new heavens and the new earth. And in John chapter 1, we see the same God this word of God, who is God, dwelling among his people. And he's not dwelling in a tent. He is taking human nature upon himself, a human body and a human soul, and he is dwelling among us. Does that not strike you as shockingly personal? When you think of God, the thrice holy God, transcendent, eternal, far above the heavens and the earth, you don't think that he would want to get down and dirty, you might say, with us. But that's what he does. And he does it to a shocking degree. He takes upon himself weak mortal flesh, a human soul and a human body, to dwell among us and live with us. I can barely trouble myself to get down on my kids' level and to talk with them in a way that they can easily understand. And yet here's the eternal God taking upon himself human nature, coming down to our level, so to speak, so that he can talk to us and reveal himself to us and save us. I mean, think about who this word is. This word, according to verse 3 of chapter 1, he created everything. He made the stars in the heavens. This word, who is God, is born to a virgin Mary. He who made the stars allows himself to be taught a trade by a human adoptive father, Jesus. You'd think he says, he would say to Joseph, I got this. I can figure out how to make a chair. This word instructs and, di and directs majestic angels in heavenly courts. And yet, those three years he tramped through the dusty streets and he taught 12 clueless men. This word of God dwelt among us. Then John says in verse 14, we saw his glory. We saw his glory. Whose glory are we still talking about? Or who are we still talking about? The word, right? It's still the word, the eternal word, who is God. That's who we're still talking about. This word who became flesh and dwelt among us, John says, we saw his glory. That tells you that this was a glory that could be observed. God is invisible, but when he took on flesh, 
he became visible to our eyes in human form. And John says we beheld his glory. Now what do we think John saw? What do we think the other disciples saw as this word incarnate dwelt among them? Did Jesus go through life with a halo on his head? Was he kind of floating three feet off the ground? No. So what kind of glory does John say he saw? Well, we get a part of an answer over in chapter 2. Look at chapter 2 of John. And in the first several verses, we see the first miracle that Jesus, this word made flesh, that Jesus ever did. And what was that miracle? Well, he was invited to a wedding. And at this wedding in Cana of Galilee, they ran out of wine, which was a horrible embarrassment. And Jesus had the servants take six water pots and fill it with water. And what did he do? Anybody remember? Yeah, he transformed it into wine. And look at verse 11 of chapter 2. This beginning of his signs or miracles, Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested what? His glory. And his disciples believed in him. And John's gospel, as you read the gospel, it's organized around several of these signs, several of these miracles that John picks out and and focuses on. And each one of those signs, each one of those miracles that Jesus does is a manifestation of his divine glory. He, the word of God, is doing these things. So that's part of the answer as to what did John see? What did the other disciples see? What glory did they see? Well, they saw him do these miracles that only God can do. But there's more to this glory. This glory that John saw, it wasn't merely a miraculous sort of glory. There's much more to it. What does he go on to say in John 1, verse 14? He says, And we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the Father, full of grace and truth. John here is talking about the nature of this glory. It's not just any kind of glory. It's a certain kind of glory that John and others saw. It's not a creaturely glory. Okay, this is not glory as of a graceful deer. You're out in the woods hunting and you see a, just a magnificent deer walk below your tree stand, a ten-pointer, and you're just in awe and you don't want to pull the trigger because it's so pretty. That's not the kind of glory John is talking about. Nor is he talking about glory as of a brilliant star. You go out at night, you look up, and you don't want to stop looking up as you see just the beauty of of the stars and the moon and the sky. That's not the kind of glory that John is talking about. Nor is it glory as of a mere man. I know when I stand up here, you all gaze in awe at me and and your your mouths hang open because you're just in awe at, at... my beauty as a, as a man. I appreciate the laughs. That's not the kind of glory that John is talking about either. Nor is it the glory as of a majestic angel. He's not even talking about that kind of glory. Glory that would knock men over when they saw angels. You know, they were afraid 
The angels had to say, don't fear. John's not talking about that kind of glory. He's not talking about a creaturely glory. He's talking about a different kind of glory. He says, we beheld his glory, glory as of the only begotten of the Father, from the Father, full of grace and truth. People tell me all the time that my son Isaac looks just like me, apart from the red hair. And when I, when I look at pictures of me when I was little, I see him. I see his face. It's the same face. And I've watched home videos of myself. And when I watch them, I sit there and I shake my head, ashamed that I ever acted that way. But it's true, I can't deny that that's me on that screen, making those sounds, acting that way. And then I see my son Isaac, and he's doing the same exact thing that I did. He's the same goofball that I ever was. My son's glory, if we can call it that, is as of one begotten from Josh Slocum, full of whatever it is Josh Slocum is full of. That relationship that I have with my son, it's comparable, it's analogous, it's like the relationship between the Divine Father and the Divine Son. It's not exact, it's comparable. It's comparable. And when we come across this kind of language about uh, the two persons, two of the persons of the Trinity being a father, being a son, when we come across language about the Son being begotten of the Father, it can make us squirm, right? Because what do we think about? We think about how I become a father. We think about how a son becomes a son, right? And we think maybe we're suggesting that God is just like that. Maybe we're suggesting that the word, the son, came into being. That maybe he wasn't always there. And maybe that means he's not God. But that's not the case. We don't need to squirm when we come across the language of father. Son, only begotten. Rather, that kind of language assures us and affirms to us that the Word is divine, that He is eternal. Because like Father, like Son, how do you know Isaac is a human being? He might not act like it, but you know he is. Why? Because he was begotten of me. How do we know that the Son of God is God and that He's eternal? And that he always was. Because like father, like son, he's from the father. You and I were created in whose image? God's image. Which means that there are things about us that are going to remind us of our creator. Right? There's going to be similarities between us and God because we're made in the image of God. But there are also going to be great differences because God is God and we are creatures, right? Being made in the image of God doesn't make us not a creature. It doesn't mean that there's no difference between us and God. No, there are vast differences. And it's the same with the father-son relationship. There's going to be similarities, but there's also going to be vast differences because we are creatures and God is not. Let's think about the differences here. So we're thinking about the point of comparison between us and God being the father-son relationship. And we're going to think about the differences, 
we're going to think about the similarities. Let's think about the differences. At one point, my son did not exist. But the Son of God has always existed. My son Isaac has a mother. The divine son has no mother. Yes, he has a mother regarding his human nature, but he has no mother regarding his divine nature. There is no mother in the Trinity. It's the Father, it's the Son, it's the Holy Spirit. Isaac, my son, became my son in time. Right? He became my son. The Son of God, there was no point in time at which he was not the Son. He didn't come into being. He's eternal. He has always been. His begottenness is eternal. His sonship is eternal. At one point, I was not a father because I was without my son. God the Father has always been a father because he has always had his son with him. I am not one with my son. Yeah, he has human nature like I do, but we're not one being. We're two separate beings. God the Father is one with God the Son. They are the same being. They share the exact same numerical essence. Those are big differences, aren't they? But there are true, real similarities. As begotten of me, my son Isaac is human like me. And as begotten of God, the son of God is God like his father. Isaac is from me in a sense. The son is from the father. That's what he says in verse 14. The only begotten from the father. And when you read the gospel, how many times does Jesus talk like that? Describe himself as from the father. And when you think about it, the title that John gives him in verse 1 affirms that kind of relationship. What is he called in verse 1? The what? The Word. Words don't pop out of nowhere, do they? Words come from someone. Someone speaks them. Someone writes them. Someone thinks them. Words come from someone. The Word came from his father. But again, there's a big difference. Our words, at one point they were not, and then they came into being. But the word is eternal. He has never not been. Never. And this is not some kind of newfangled thing. This is something the church has confessed for a very long time. Listen to the Nicene Creed, which was written in 325 A.D., long time ago. That creed, which we would affirm, says, We believe in one God, the Father Almighty, maker of all things, visible and invisible, and in one Lord Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the only begotten of his Father, of the substance of the Father. Just saying there, he's one being with the Father, shares that nature. God of God, Light of light, very God of very God, begotten, not made. Right there, they're affirming that this language of son, father, begotten, doesn't mean that he's not eternal. They go on, they say, being of one substance with the father. He's same God. By whom all things were made, both which be in heaven and in earth, 
who for us men and for our salvation came down from heaven and was incarnate and was made man. Where do you think they got all that? Did they just make it up? Where do you think they got that? Seriously, what do you think? Where do you think they got that from? John 1. John 1. That's where they got that from. They go on to say, He suffered, and the third day he rose again and ascended into heaven. And he shall come again to judge both the quick and the dead. And we believe in the Holy Ghost. And then they turn a corner in that creed because they want to guard against anyone coming to the conclusion that the Son is less than the Father. They want to guard against anyone coming to the conclusion that he's a creature or that he's not one with the Father. And listen to what they say. It's a warning. They say, And whosoever shall say that there was a time when the Son of God was not, or that before he was begotten he was not, or that he was made of things that were not, or that he is of a different substance or essence from the Father, or that he's a creature, or subject to change or conversion. All that so say, the universal and apostolic church anathematizes them. You see there, they are affirming completely that the Son of God is the eternal God, second person of the Trinity. And it's interesting, in, in God's providence, we sang, O come all ye faithful, right? If, you, if you've got a hymnal, open it up. We sang, uh, O come all ye faithful. I think that's, it was 250, no, 248. 248. And we, we had this hymn in our, our previous hymnals, but our previous hymnals had three verses, not four. And you know which verse it was that was gone? in our previous hymnal, verse 2, right? So it's been a long time since we've sung verse 2 of O Come All Ye Faithful. And what does that verse say? True God of true God, light of light eternal. Lo, he abhors not the virgin's womb, son of the Father, not made, but begotten. Singing the Nicene Creed there, singing John 1 there. So this glory that John beheld, it wasn't the glory of a creature. It was the glory of the second person of the Trinity, the Word of God, the only begotten from the Father. That is whose glory he was looking at as Jesus walked among them. But there's even more to this glory. Back in John 1, verse 14, he further describes this glory, its glory that is full of, of grace and truth, full of grace and truth. Now John, by using the language of glory and grace and truth, he may be directing our attention back to Exodus. Let's go back to Exodus 33. This is after God has given his people the Ten Commandments, and remember, they said three times, all that the Lord has said we will do. And then Moses goes up on the mountain, and what do the people immediately do? They make a golden calf, and they bow before it. And God disciplines them, and yet he doesn't wipe them out completely. He stays with them. And Moses, in verse 18 of Exodus 33, says this. Verse 18, then Moses said, I pray you, Show me your glory. 
Moses wants to behold. He wants to see the glory of God. Now, how do you think God might go about answering a request like that? If you said, God, show me your glory. And if God said, all right, I'll do that, what would you expect him to do to show you his glory? You might expect him to make great signs in the heavens or to shake the earth or to do something, something like that. But how does God say he's going to answer that request? Look at verse 19. And he said, I myself will make all my goodness pass before you and will proclaim the name of the Lord before you. And I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious and will show compassion on whom I show compassion. That's how God's going to answer the, quest, or the, the request of show me your glory. He's going to make his goodness pass before Moses. He's going to proclaim his name, which is all that God is. He's going to proclaim his name to Moses. And he introduces the, the language of grace there. I will be gracious to whom I will be gracious. And then we see God actually do this, do what he says he's going to do in chapter 34 of Exodus. Chapter 34 and verse 6 says, Then the Lord passed by in front of him and proclaimed the Lord, the Lord God, compassionate and what? Gracious, slow to anger and abounding in loving kindness and what? Truth. Truth. So you see there the language of glory, language of grace, language of truth. That's the glory that Moses beheld on the mountain. And that is the exact same glory that John beheld as Jesus walked among him and others for those three years when they followed him. It's the same glory. This Yahweh who appeared to Moses on the mountain John is looking at the same thing that Moses saw. And we see this displayed throughout the Gospels. For example, uh, look at Luke chapter 4. You could see this, this grace and truth and glory in the teaching of Jesus. Luke chapter 4, it's at the beginning of Jesus' public ministry, and he is teaching people in his hometown of Nazareth. And how do the people respond to his teaching that they've heard so far? Verse 22. Verse 22. And all were speaking well of him and wondering at the gracious words which were falling from his lips. Literally, they were wondering at the words of grace which were proceeding out of his mouth. He is full of grace and it's just, it's just coming out of his mouth as he talks. And then what do they say in verse 22? They were saying, is this not Joseph's son? Is this not Joseph's son? They considered Jesus to be Joseph's boy, and yet Jesus is talking like God's boy, full of grace and truth, having the same nature as the Father. So you see this grace and truth not only in his miracles, but in his teaching. But you also see it somewhere else. You see it most eminently displayed in his death and his resurrection. Turn to John chapter 12. John 
John 12. Jesus is speaking to Philip and Andrew in verse 23. Jesus answered them, saying, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. The hour is that hour that Jesus was always looking ahead to. And he kept saying, my hour has not come, my hour has not come. But then the hour did come. And what was that hour? The hour of his death and his resurrection. And that hour is when Jesus is glorified in the most magnificent of ways. Then look at chapter 13. Chapter 13 and verse 31. This is during the Last Supper. Therefore, when he, Judas had gone out, gone out to betray Jesus, Jesus said, Now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. Verse 32, If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and will glorify him immediately. We see the fullness of the grace and truth of Jesus most clearly in the cross and in the resurrection, where he displays his grace to the uttermost by dying for our sins and by rising from the dead so that if we would trust in him, if we would believe that he is the truth, we would be forgiven and be saved and reconciled to God. In John 14, just to wrap up here, John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way and the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. Jesus is saying, I am the only way to God. I am the way. There's no other way but me. I am the truth. There's no other truth apart from me. And I am the life. There is no life apart from me. You don't get to the Father except through me. That means Muhammad doesn't get you there. That means Joseph Smith doesn't teach rightly about how to get there. That tells you that Buddha can't get you there, nor Confucius, nor anybody else can get you to God. There is nobody else except Jesus Christ. He is the only way to God. Now, how dare somebody say something like that? How can Jesus say that? Look at verse 7. He says, if you had known me, you would have known my father also. From now on, you know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, show us the father and it is enough for us. Jesus said to him, have I been so long with you? And yet you have not come to know me, Philip. He who has seen me has seen the father. How can you say, show us the father? Do you not believe that I am in the father? And the Father is in me. The words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me. Otherwise believe because of the works themselves. Truly, truly, I say to you, he who believes in me, the works that I do, he will do also. And greater works than these he will do because I go to the Father. Whatever you ask in my name, that will I do, so that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. 
How can Jesus say, I am the way, the truth, and the life? No one comes to the Father except through me. It's because he alone is the only begotten from the Father. It's because he alone came and he took on flesh so that he could live a righteous life in our place, so that he could die in our place. He, the God-man who dwelt among us and rise from the dead, he alone is the one who has opened up the way to God because he alone is God and he alone has become man to bring man to God through his death and resurrection. So how could Jesus say the things he said and do the things he did? It's because he is the Son of God made flesh. That's why. And if you don't know him yet, you are cut off from the Father, headed for the hell that each one of us deserves. And if you would be forgiven and receive life, you've got to go through Jesus. And he never turns anyone away who comes to him and truly believes that he is who he says he is. So come to him by faith. And if you need help, just talk to me or Owen. We're happy to talk to you about Jesus. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for sending your son, your own son. We thank you that he is your son, that he is the eternal God, second person of the Trinity, and that he took on flesh and that he came and he dwelt among us so that we could see your glory full of grace and truth so that we could come to know who God is. You sent your word to communicate to us who you are. And he didn't only communicate to us, but he purchased our redemption on the cross. And so, Lord, as we consider who the baby lying in the manger is, help us to come to that conclusion and help us to surrender our lives to him in repentant faith, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.